Hello, this is Mike, previously known as Spartan. And this is Sam, previously known as Walla. Please be advised that after episode 10, Knight is no longer with the show. We have chosen to keep the episodes in which they co-hosted intact for continuity and to make as many episodes as possible available to the listeners. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Hardtack Episode 2, Night of the Long Knives, which is somewhat misleading as the event occurred over the course of roughly 48 hours. But Adolf Hitler chose the name himself, and we will get more into that later in the episode. I am your host, Spartan. And with me are my co-hosts, Knight and Walla. How are you guys doing today? Pretty All right. good. All right. It's good to be back for episode two. All right. So yeah. speaking of episode two, right? Uh, first off, we'd like to start off by saying thank you. Thank, thank you to all of you who tuned in for episode one, especially if you're returning for episode two. Seeing as we're still trying to figure out exactly what the hell we're doing, there's going to be some bumps and hiccups in the road, but please bear with us as uh, we, we kind of fall into a, a, a normal process here. Uh, your continued support, suggestions, and warm reception are greatly appreciated. That being said, we'll get started. Hardtack is a military history podcast and contains mature themes, content, and some crude language. Listener discretion is advised. We do not claim to be experts in any of the topics discussed. The opinions and analysis expressed are that of the participants alone. Now, put on your Kevlar, secure your lickies and chewies, and prepare to take cover for this episode of Hard Deck. also known as Ramputsch, began on June 30th, 1934, when Adolf Hitler, along with an entourage of Schutzstaffel, or SS, arrived in Bad VC, a municipality of Miesbach in Upper Bavaria. It was then that he began the purge of Sturmabteilung leadership, hereby known as SA. The SA name translates to Storm Detachment or Division. Bad VC gained greater notoriety following the events that unfolded in the picturesque town between June 30th and July 2nd of 1934. Being a resort town, many of the SA leadership were enjoying all that the resort had to offer, at Hitler's order, when Hitler initiated his bloody plan to seize undisputed power. What followed was a multi-day power consolidation, characterized by arrest and slaughter, driven by Hitler's infamous paranoia. The results of the purge made clear to all of Germany that Hitler was both supreme leader and above the law. The SA was a paramilitary group founded by Hitler in 1921. They used violence and intimidation in achieving organizational goals, and were instrumental in Hitler's rise to power. The group was formed from radical civilians, 
ex-soldiers, and other individuals who were opposed to the leftist ideology. SA men gathered at party meetings for the purpose of security, marched in Nazi rallies, and often assaulted political opponents, specifically during national and local elections. Just to reiterate here, we are talking about Germany in the 1920s. We're not talking about any recent events in the 2020s, though there may be some similarities. Getting back to the history, membership within the SA grew rapidly, due in large part to global economic woes in the 1920s and 30s, specifically the Great Depression. Exact membership count is unknown, but some estimates assume membership to be over 20 times the size of the German regular army, or more than 2 million by 1933, the year Hitler rose to power as Chancellor of Germany. So, here we have a paramilitary group that Hitler created, which served as muscle while he rose to the ranks of the German political system. They were made up of extremists, and were so unruly by the time that he did seize power, Hitler himself had grown untrusting of senior members and their approach, and decided, this is a problem. Time to kill off potential shit-stirrers in the ranks, right? Make some arrests, resource, sense of order. Now, this, this restored sense of order was, of course, uh, an illusion. I mean, not only was Hitler ready to kill off potential shit-stirrers within the ranks, though, he was also ready to type some loose ends he made when he was uh, shacking up with his niece, um, who may or may not have been murdered. According to a documentary I watched from History.com regarding the Night of the Long Knives, in 1931 Hitler was having an affair with his young niece, Geli Rubel, um, and she ended up supposedly committing suicide. But her death was under peculiar circumstances. She was found lying on the floor of her room with a gunshot wound to the chest and Hitler's gun laying by her side. She was just 23 years old when she died. Apparently, she had a violent argument with him the preceding day and he claimed that when she died that he was out of town. I mean, I hate to say it, but isn't that what every guilty person says? Um, That's usually the case. However, this was refuted by the proprietor of the tavern, who said that Hitler and this girl had been at his place of business that preceding evening and that he had left after midnight. Um, so during the Night of the Long Knives, this proprietor, Karl Zentner was his name, he was killed along with a wine steward and the head waiter who were working at the tavern that night. She was killed. No. And thus were witnesses that Hitler wanted out of the way. No joke. Oh, how convenient. You know, it's incredible, you know, uh, prior to the research um, uh, on this topic, I, I, I wasn't aware. Um, what, I, what I discovered was that it's his half-niece, which, I mean, it's, it's still your niece. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, and there, there's photos of her in, the, in this book that I, that I, you know, one of the books I referenced, uh, The Night of the Long Knives, 48 Hours to Change the History of the World by Paul R. Marison. I hope I said that correctly. And there's photos of her, like, uh, playing in the water at, at a beach or a lake. And um, it does confirm the video that, that you watched that, yes, there, there, there is more than ample evidence that he did, in fact, have an affair with, with his niece. It's just so strange. Like, I, I know that, I suppose, interfamilial relationships were a tiny bit more common back then, potentially. Maybe it was much further back in history. Sure. But it's still really strange to me. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure how to take that. Um, but I did, I did find the events surrounding her death. And, and it's almost poetic, I suppose, that she was found uh, dead, supposedly, of suicide with a 
gunshot wound to the chest with with her lovers with Hitler's pistol. Um, I, I guess that's supposed to be poetic. Yeah. It sounds more like murder. <laughs> oh yeah, but no, he was reportedly out of town. You know that night, so can't have been him. Oh, sure. you know. Right, and, until the proprietor ended up dead later, right? Oh yeah, but that was just yeah. yeah. Completely separate. All right. Dead for a second. Oh, 100%. 100%. It surely wasn't the SA, which moving in, moving in back into the SA, uh, this is going to sound a lot like something the SA would have done. The terror and strong arm tactics visited upon the populace by the SA were enabled by the autonomy that Hitler had tolerated within the ranks of the group. Um, Perhaps Hitler ordered the hit. It doesn't mean that he did it, uh, but obviously he had. Two million strong, upward of, uh, estimated, working for him. Uh, perhaps the thought was that in allowing greater freedom of activity among the SA, uh, the reputation of the group as a violent force not to be meddled with would be bolstered. They were to be feared on the streets. This was acceptable as he rose to power, because it enabled his, his rise to power, or at least partly. However, once he was named Chancellor, the conduct of the SA became unacceptable. Hitler had a persona that needed to be nurtured, maintained, one of both a hard, passionate leader, but one in control of his subordinates, and surely the SA were not easily controlled. From the website, The History Place, The big problem for Hitler was that Rom and his arrogant young brown shirts fancied themselves as the nucleus of a new people's army that would replace the traditional German army, similar to Napoleon's revolutionary army. This this actually kind of brings up a point that I learned about it is that there's, particularly with Rom, there's this difference between Hitler and Rom going on here with regard to the SA. Um, the thing was Hitler, Hitler wanted a military, and he wanted that to be under the power and the plans of the party. Right. That's what Hitler wanted. Whereas you have the vision of Rom, he wanted this duel. You have the party and you have the military organization. And the military organization would serve the interests of the parties at the party's request. But those two things in Rom's vision are separate. And so you don't just have this uh, this rough and tumble group of brown shirts, you know, that they're just bullies. But there's actually this different vision of what this, this whole conflict is a difference of vision of between Hitler and Rom and what they're envisioning the future of the organization should look like. And it, it, it's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting because what because obviously because Hitler is trying to appeal to the German people, but he's also trying to appeal to the higher elites and the German military, and then you have the SA, right? And you have Rom's plan of having the SA and the German military kind of combining, and that the SA would be in control of the German military. And so yeah. what you have is not only just this compete between Hitler's vision of a military under the power of the party and Rom having just this dual military and the party visions, but you also have Rom trying to advocate that the SA take over the German military, and the German military doesn't really like that. Up to this point, though, especially for Hitler, Hitler had learned the lesson not to mess with the German military given he was, I think he was put on probation. Right. No, he was actually sentenced to jail and then definitely almost got th- thrown out of the country for it. Um, 
back in the 1920s during the the uh what was it the 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 beer hall putsch i think uh, which ended up in in jail and he started to write mein kampf at that time he learned his lesson not to mess with the german military and so by rom placing or insisting rather that the sa has to control the german military this added the pressure of the German military on Hitler to, like, do something about it and to take some kind of action. And that's kind of what's going on here as you have this almost this SA, this unruly group. It's not just that they're unruly and they need to be controlled, but there's also a battle of visions for the future of the Nazi party. Yeah. But there's also a battle about who controls who and... That's really central to this. No, and I I think that that perfectly you know defines the struggle that was going on that the, the tension that, that that existed between between the SA uh, who, who were typically more leftist and you know the the conservative Nazi party that existed within government uh, with with Hitler as chancellor, and I can't not draw parallels to. Uh, and granted, this happened years later uh, during World War II. But you, you were talking about the German army being answerable, or or the the SA being answerable uh, at at the government's request. And it was very similar. Uh, looking at Axis powers, you know, Japan, where yeah, you had the emperor and you had the government, but the military kind of did their own thing. And I find that interesting that. Uh, the, these two these two nations that ended up allied during World War II kind of had that similar that similar tension and that similar schism within their governments. And you mentioning I wasn't going to talk about this till later, but it, I mean you mentioning about just you had the more leftist leaning within the SA. I mean there was certainly within the SA you did have as many Nazis came to see it the more problematic people, you know the people who wanted a more revolutionary direction, people who right. really emphasized. The workers, uh, and a few other things that will surely get brought up later as we go along here. But so this night of long knives was certainly seen as a purging of the inferiors within the Nazi from Nazis' perspective. Absolutely, right. So with all this going on, uh, Hitler, having come to distrust the power of the SA uh, and their leader Ernst Röhm, who again uh, he had installed. Uh, this largely due to also urging from, from Goring and Himmler, who fed Hitler's paranoia, uh, had heard that Rome was organizing a coup. There was some evidence of this reported from loyalists to Hitler within the ranks of the SA, right? Because not everyone within the SA was, was a uh, follower or a loyalist to Rome. Uh, it was reported to Hitler by one SA member that Rome had made the statement what that ridiculous corporal says, speaking about Hitler and his time in service in the military as a corporal, what that ridiculous corporal says means nothing to us. I have not the slightest intention of keeping this agreement. Hitler is a traitor, and at the very least, must go on leave. If we can't get there with him, we'll get there without him. There being the SA's installment as the new people's army. So, here we have Rom, allegedly, right? And, and this is hearsay. 
making a statement that if we can't get there with Hitler, we'll get there without him. And there, that goal being, yeah, the essays installment as a new people's army, that revolutionary army that, that was to replace the traditional German army that existed following the Treaty of uh, Versailles. I guess I, I do want to say something here, though, because um, while this is certainly a hypothetical statement, and certainly the SA member could be just straight up lying, but it was true, <laughs> especially while Hitler was in prison, that there was tension between Rom and Hitler and going sure. back to like how, how, how to guide things and like how to manage uh, just how to manage the SA itself. And so there was friction between Rom and Hitler. Ultimately, kind of like at the end of it, it all just went ultimately against Rom because Rom just lost everything. There was a point in time when Hitler was in jail. Rom wanted to do a certain feats with the SA. Hitler did not approve. But because the Hitler was in prison, Rom did it anyway. And he did it by going about just saying, oh yeah, the Fuhrer, he's, he, he accepts this. He actually agrees with this, even though Hitler had explicitly didn't. So there is kind of this, what he says isn't really what he says, or, and all that kind of thing going on. Just because this particular claim is untrue doesn't necessarily mean that you know that there was a friction between them. No, absolutely true, and and this was fed by other players within the the SA and outside of the SA organization, uh, specifically uh, Hemmler, uh, as well as his second in command Reinhard Heydrich. Uh, they ultimately plotted Rom's downfall, and they had issues with Rom for for. Uh, notable reasons as well as some some assumed reasons uh but they were not alone they were and, and they were conspirators against rom with another nazi opportunist specifically hermann goering uh and the three men began some rumors and half truths that reached hitler concerning rom and just fed into that tension fed into hitler's already existing uh paranoia one of the big issues especially for himmler himmler especially one of the things that really wanted to be poked at was for Rom was that he was gay and Himmler absolutely hated homosexuality. He was absolutely a homophobe, a big one. Right. And so he didn't just hate Rom because of his being gay, but because he was also, Himmler was also Rom subordinate. And that's also important too, because this, ref now this bit reflects the sexism of Germany, but homosexuality was seen as a feminine thing. And so right. Himmler thought, oh man, you're but you're beneath just this gay person. That was that was that was almost taken to personal blows. And he and Himmler also took homosexuality in and of itself as like a personal blow. Um sure, sure. he truly was a major homophobe. I've even seen historians say above all the Nazi for all their homophobia and hate like he especially was a major homophobe mm. um he even recommended among the for the ss ranks and for the police departments that he introduced the idea of executing people who were gay yes <laughs> and and he certainly gave speeches especially during uh 1934 and then later on he would definitely specify make comments about that there should be a sharp condemnation of 
gay people and that there's a even acceptability and even a desirability to kill gay people and right. so this night of the long knives this night where Brom himself will ultimately die in this was almost a watershed moment for persecution of gay people in Nazi Germany like it was already by now it was clearly going on throughout the rest of the country and especially Nazi Germany taking full advantage of paragraph 175 however of course as you see here Rom is kind of being tolerated even though it was known that he was gay due to court documents and leaked diaries but even though he was known to be gay like Hitler was still kind of like there was still this kind of lenience there's kind of this lenience towards gay people but after this night of the long knives granted it would be applied very wishy-washy there would definitely be terms of rhetoric and stance of harsher and more violent way of dealing with gay people in Nazi Germany after the night of the long knives Right, no, that's absolutely true. It was a gradual process, but once it once it had been instilled and and it had become concrete, uh, that th there was no um, there was no it room is... for it, and it, and it, and it wasn't it wasn't specifically just directed uh, at gays. It, it, I mean, that that population, uh, along with Jews and, and people of color and different ethnicities, uh, they started just all lumping them in into this one massive you're not Aryan, you don't meet these standards and and we're going to terminate but it's interesting yes and specifically here in night of the long knives how you see that they're able to take this one population here and start to discriminate against them and use this purge and we'll find out later you know as we move on how how they backed some of the justification for the purge on things such as the homosexuality of some of the SA leaders um, and this this extended beyond Night of the Long Knives, but it's exactly like you said. The Night of the Long Knives was it was a watershed moment. It was precedent setting, and there's a very specific reason for that. And I won't spoil it yet, but uh, we're going to come to find out that the consequences that might have been expected in 1934 after the Night of the Long Knives don't quite don't quite marry up to the consequences that existed a decade prior during Hitler's attempted beer hall putsch. Very different outcomes. Very interesting to note. And Hitler, as we know, also encouraged this type of competition amongst his leadership. He encouraged this type of, this paranoid combativeness. Uh, and it was encouraged by disagreement um, between conservative elite and government, now under Hitler as chancellor, and the SA. He pitted them against each other. Absolutely he did. It was thought that the SA wished to continue their methods of revolution that had brought Hitler to power and that they would replace government elites with SA leadership, which we've already discussed. It is important to note that the conservative elite had, in fact, bankrolled Hitler's rise to power on the promise that Hitler would restore the traditional army and its leaders to the glory days predating the Treaty of Versailles. Um, and for those versed in history, we know that after World War One, and which Germany lost, the Treaty of Versailles largely uh, is one of the reasons that, that Hitler and historians today uh, and since they, they kind of blame a lot of 
why World War II occurred on the Treaty of Versailles. And the Treaty of Versailles, um, without sounding like like I'm sympathetic to, to, to what Germany did, uh, was incredibly harsh. Uh, restricted their armies, restricted their, their economy. Germany suffered, and, and I don't want to say just the German elite, I don't want to say the German military, the German people suffered from the Treaty of Versailles. Naturally, Hitler and his installed Nazi leaders, along with the bankrollers, the conservatives, uh, that, that had put him in power, and helped pave that, pave that road to power, did not agree with Rom and the SA's desire to replace the traditional German army. From the HolocaustExplained.org, they, this being Hitler and his bankrollers, understood the need to appear moderate and take over slowly by democratic means where possible, maintaining the stability and illusion of a democracy. However, as we are all too aware, this was in fact a dictatorship. It was a gradual takeover. There was nothing democratic about Hitler's government. In response to the growing tension, and his need to neutralize threats to his and the regime's power, Hitler ordered that SA leadership was to attend a meeting at the Hanselbauer Hotel in Bad VC, Bavaria, on June 30th. For those history buffs keen on visiting the site at which Rom was taken into custody, you actually still can. This hotel still stands today and is known as the Hotel Lederer. If I said that correctly, again, I, I do not speak German. Uh, not only is the hotel still standing, but the very room in which Rom was staying and in which Rom was arrested is still available uh, for you and your friends to stay in if you so desire. There's actually a picture of it in this book that I've already referenced by Paul R. Uh, Marison. I, I just found that very interesting. It's, it's quite the historical site, and, and you would imagine something like that would be preserved as more of a come and, and, and check it out as opposed to a come and sleep here. But hey, it is what it is. Um, moving on here. Upon his arrival, Hitler had Rom and the SA leadership present, arrested. I just wanted to highlight, though, that the SA leadership weren't the only high-ranking officials that Hitler wanted to arrest or execute that night. Um, one individual in particular that I thought was worth mentioning is... I also apologize, I may pronounce this wrong, um, is Rudolf Diels or Diels. Um, no, you had it right. You had it. I had it right? Okay. Yes. Um, a little bit of background info that I gathered on him uh, and compiled from the Jewish Virtual Library and a historian known as John Simpkin. Basically, Diels was trained as a lawyer. He joined the political police in Prussia in 1930, and over the next couple of years, he became this expert on building dossiers that would be used to uh, incriminate political radicals. Um, and as Hermann Goering became Minister of the Interior in Prussia in 1933, he recruited Diels as head of the Department 1A of the Prussian State Police. And Goering was impressed by Diels' work so much so that he actually made him head of what beca became known as the Gestapo. Um, and for those unaware, the Gestapo, um, that was the official secret uh, police of Nazi Germany at the time. And basically the Gestapo was like a combination of the various political police agencies of Prussia into what merged into one organization. 
Anyway, his quick rise to power made him a significant target um, from the perspective of the SS. Specifically, he came to the attention of political rivals such as Heinrich Himmler and, as mentioned previously, Rein Reinhard Heydrich. Due to him gaining power in the Gestapo and as a result, they had actually formulated these stories that claimed he was a fellow conspiracist alongside Ernst Röhm, who was the one organising the suspected coup against Hitler. However, without the support of Hermann Göring, Diels would have been killed during the Night of the Long Knives. He narrowly avoided execution by fleeing his post for five weeks while this all went down. Now, I didn't actually find any mention of the specifics as to how Göring supported him regarding how Diels might have uh, known that he was in danger of execution, uh, but I suspect Göring gave him warning well in advance. Um, Goering had actually stopped him from going to prison on numerous occasions, notably once in 1940 when he declined to order the arrest of the Jews. And, which I think is very important in noting, this is following the events of the July 20 plot. Um, and for those that don't know what the July 20 plot is, it was the attempted assassination and military coup of um, Adolf Hitler. I mean, right, that's a different right. topic entirely, but I just thought that was sure. significant being, you know, like he was the former head of the Gestapo refusing to arrest mm. Jews. Like, that's insane. No, um, it really is, <laughs> considering where everything ended up by 1945. Exactly. Um, so, you know, the reason why I thought it was relevant to bring this man's identity and experience forward was to kind of highlight how easy it was to convince Hitler that people even within the highest, most prestigious ranks of the Nazi party were deemed untrustworthy based off um, word of mouth rumours. And not only that, but as an intended target in the Night of the Long Knives, he was able to avoid it in its entirety. And it's fascinating to ponder the idea on how many people that Hitler actually intended to execute that night might have escaped. No, you, you bring up such a great point, and, and it's incredible. Again, uh, going back to a statement I had previously made and marrying that up with the statement you just made, Hitler encouraged the competitiveness and, and the backstabbing amongst his ranks. But in turn, like you're saying here, he fed the, the, this paranoia and allowed others to feed the paranoia to the point where it's like, hey, go out and one-up the person to your left and right. I encourage the competitiveness. But then when they, knowing that he had said these things, that knowing that he had instilled this in, in the people that were supposed to be his closest confidants, as well as his leadership, Hitler then listened to them, knowing that he'd fueled it, and went, oh, well, that's something I should be concerned about. Let's deal with that. And it's like, guy, <laughs> what what part of... Go and stab each other in the back makes you think that they're not coming back and going, hey, and stabbing him in the back, I'm lying to you. But take my word for it, you can't trust him. I really like this idea of everyone just underneath him, serve him and listen to him and respect him. Meanwhile, everyone else can just be able to challenge another. Right, right. Like Only that loyalty. He's the one grunt that you can't challenge. And, and that's just such a narcissistic way of thinking. Like, it just doesn't track, you know? My goodness. No, great point. All right, well, uh, so now we have some background and history leading up to June 30th, <laughs> the, the official start of the Night of the Long Knives. Um, and yes, that 
we haven't even gotten to the Night of the Long Knives, but that history, that background, those relationships are all relevant in understanding the timeline of events that occurred between June 30th, roughly at 6.30 a.m., all the way until July 2nd, where Hitler terminated the Night of the Long Knives at approximately 4 a.m. on July 2nd. So, we'll now get into the specifics of the Purge as the timeline of events occurred. All right, picking up at the timeline of events. On June 30th, arriving at about 6.30 a.m., this is Hitler and his entourage of SS, the hotel, this hotel, again, referencing back to the Hanselbauer Hotel in Bonn, B.C., was secured by the SS. Then, escorted by his SS entourage, a plainclothes officer, along with Hitler, knocked on Rom's door, and Hitler confronted the SA leader. Now, uh, reading, reading, going back to this book, uh, apparently, Rom had been sleeping. And when he answered the door, he answered the door without realizing that the Fuhrer, the Chancellor of Germany, was there, looked at the plainclothes officer and said, Are you here already? Very casually, sleepily, are you here already? It was found that Rom's, I don't know if it was his second command or, or one of his officers, another SA officer, was in the room, in bed with his chauffeur. And this goes back to some of the homosexuality that existed within the SA ranks. And at this point, Hitler, obviously, as well as other individuals, were aware that this was going on. And this does, again, highlight the watershed moment that the purge here that we're discussing was for homosexuals within the Nazi, and the, uh, the Nazi party and the SA. So, knocked on the door, and Hitler confronted Rom with a pistol held in his hand. So he had him at gunpoint, and he lambasted him with accusations of treachery. This, again, fed by his two contemporaries, uh, as far as paranoia goes and the rumors. Rom and senior SA leadership were arrested at the hotel, outside of the rooms, in Bad VC. After Rom's arrest, and that of a few other SA officers in the hotel, because he was by far uh, not the only one, Hitler and his entourage prisoners included, headed to the Munich railroad station and vehicles where other SA leaders had begun to arrive. Uh, they had been summoned there by Rom after being given orders by Hitler that they were to meet at the hotel in Bad VC. They were subsequently arrested by Hitler's SS and they were taken, all of them, to Stadelheim prison. Regarding uh, Rom's arrest, I thought it was uh, worth mentioning that prior to 30, 1934, Hitler was actually arrested in 1924 regarding similar purge, which I think was briefly mentioned earlier. I think it's called the Beer Hall Putsch. Um, That's correct, yes. Which was essentially, uh, he wanted to also commit a coup against the, the German government. However, mm. what was interesting is that Rome actually at the time testified on his behalf. He actually had his back. His loyalties at the time were quite strong with Hitler, which I believe in combination with his camaraderie kind of led Hitler's hesitation on pulling the final uh, trigger on Rome. Hitler had actually taken Rom's name off the list to be killed until he was finally persuaded otherwise by Himmler and Goering. You know, they kind of said something along the lines of, you can't kill all of his subordinates and let him live. He has to go. 
you know. So it only took him one day to be persuaded otherwise. You know, there again, I just want to reiterate how easy it was for Hitler to be convinced of eliminating even just one heavily once trusted ally and comrade. You know, when he, after he was arrested and he was being held in the Dattelheim prison, he was apparently offered a small mercy for, quote, old time's sake, end quote, um, in his last moments. Basically, they gave him the chance to commit suicide and take his own life as a former soldier. It was the honourable way to go, um, apparently. Mm. And, you know, the guards in Munich opened Rome's cell up and put a revolver on the desk, and Rome said, you expect me to take my own life. You don't have the guts to do it yourself, do you? Um, and he was supposedly given Bold. five minutes. Oh, I know. <laughs> Bold um, statement. Apparently, I don't know how true this is, but this was kind of reiterated in the documentary. He kind of apparently had his like chest all high up and he had his like shoulders pulled back. He's like, you really expect me to take my own life? You know, you don't have the guts to do it yourself. I'm like, oh man, <laughs> that would have been boring. What a challenge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, so he was supposedly given five minutes to take his own life. But after the guards heard nothing after that um, time slot, and I thought it was worth mentioning also, one of the guards was the future head of Dachau Prison. Oh. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Insane. Interesting. Um, uh, so they return and proceed to shoot him point blank. And his last mm. words, recorded by the way, were, Heil Hitler, my Führer, my Führer. That's um, so, loyal to the yeah, end, right? Um, and not to... Again, the, the the Nazi cause is not something to admire by any means. But the loyalty that he displayed in his final, final moments, although quite misplaced, loyalty is something that I think is, is admirable. Unfortunately, as I already stated, it, it, it is often quite misplaced. What a terribly sad story, honestly. It, it, it's interesting again that that hitler demanded such loyalty but in this case here's a perfect example of his lack of loyalty to anyone outside of himself and and the cause for which he 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 died for ultimately it's just incredible no no it's just that in general Brahms' whole life especially as a nazi part of why he was in such a high position i mean he had he was part of one of the three big groups in Germany to advocate for gay rights. And part of his big push was he wanted to just, you know, just change the homophobic nature of the Nazi. He wanted, he just wanted that element changed. He didn't want anything else changed. He was all for the sexism and anti-Semitism, but he really tried to make this push about to make homosexuality an acceptable if not integral part of the whole Nazi party and the regime. And... Which, is, which is so interesting because it, it's, it, it's almost hypocritical of him to have said, hey, this is acceptable, but this is not. And it's very interesting that, but again, it, it fit his lifestyle, right? Mm-hmm. And like, like his sexism, like uh, he really, mm, right. he really, because, you know, his homosexuality was, 
seen as this feminine thing. And he tried to change that. He tried to change that perception, make it this very masculine thing about brotherhood. And that's how he was trying to make it integral to the whole Nazi party was because right. Nazis had this, like this homosocial element, sure, masculine social apparatus. And so he tried to integrate that with homosexuality. And, and so, of course, he's also trying to do this to repeal paragraph 175. And ultimately, all that happens, he never lives as, because it's kind of this conundrum with Rome, because he's known to be gay. Like, that's known. He, like, the diaries are out, like that information is out, but he's never able to, like, be a gay person. He can't be just open about that. Right. Like, it's known about him. But he has to keep that kind of under covers. And he spends his whole life trying to advance gay rights, but yet he'll never be able to do that. Paragraph 175 will still be, by the time of his death, in fact, that would even be revised even more explicitly. Anti-homosexuality, any nuance or any lack of vagueness that was in originally was just all revised away. And he'll die that way. Yeah. Unable to be this open gay man instead he'll die semi-closeted semi-open and nazi germany would just even be worse right and it, it, it's very similar i'm sorry uh, and also to be backhanded for because he was loyal to the fuhrer for the he was part, and he was i mean his last words indicate exactly that and and, and it, just none of it for anything good like it all come for nothing right and and the lack of i'm not even going to say tolerance the the hard line approach that the nazi party took uh was was early on exemplified uh here in in night of the long knives in 1934 prior to their their hardline approach of you know aryan uh, purity and perfection there was some room for other than uh, to put it to put it loosely, whereas that all started to change here once once Hitler really consolidated power and and the Reichstag uh, approved of his actions. But I don't want to get ahead of myself there either, or ahead of <laughs> the timeline of events. So following the arrest of Rum at the hotel. Uh, some of the SA officers that were at the hotel, as well as the SA officers that were intercepted at the train station, uh, train station there in Munich, and Rum's very quick assassination in, in Stadelheim. Operation Hummingbird, as it was known, actually went into effect. And this is where really the, the Night of the Long Knives began. At about 10 a.m. on Saturday, June 30th, same day, Hitler placed a phone call to Goering in Berlin and gave the code word Kolibri, which, again, I don't speak German, uh, which meant hummingbird. So this was, this was a call sign. This was the go-ahead signal for the purge. The purge encompassed murders and arrests in Berlin as well as 20 other cities. 20 other cities to include Munich, Stettin, Breslau, Dresden, and Gleiwitz, just to name a few. One of the targets was Hitler's predecessor, General Kurt von Schleicher. He was assassinated at New Babelsburg, Potsdam, Germany. 
which there's actually quite a, a bit of significance re regarding Potsdam. That was actually also where the Potsdam Conference was he held. And for those unaware, um, the Potsdam Conference was where the official negotiations were held uh, regarding the establishment of post-World War II borders in Europe, which mm. in attendance were the, the Soviet Union leader Joseph Stalin, British PM Winston Churchill, and US President Harry Truman, which I thought was interesting fact about that. Yeah. No, uh, very good point to bring up. Yeah, Potsdam is... Um... Quite a historic city for, for many reasons. Uh, and here clearly dating back to 1934 and I'm sure even prior to. Going back to Hitler's predecessor, uh, predecessor General Kurt von Schleicher. At approximately 10.30 a.m., a group of men knocked on Schleicher's door. Schleicher, who was on the phone, placed the phone down and opened the door. He was asked by a group of trench-coated men if he was in fact General Schleicher, and after confirming his identity, he was killed, suffering two gunshot wounds. Upon hearing the shots, his wife, Elizabeth, ran to the front of the house, where she was confronted by this group of men in trench coats, and was also murdered. Of course, these were a group of, of SS men who had been activated, pending the, the initiation of Operation Hummingbird by Hitler from Munich. Interesting note that I found while doing some research in the book that I've already referenced two or three times by uh, Paul R. Morrison, Night of the Long Knives, 48 Hours That Changed the History of the World. The gunfire, this is quote, the gunfire at the Von Schleicher Villa was heard at the Adenauer residence a few hundred yards away. Conrad Adenauer was in the garden with his family, watering his flowers, when a Gestapo agent climbed over the locked garden gate and arrested him. He was permitted to pack a few belongings and then driven away. Later, interrogated at the Potsdam Police Headquarters, he was threatened with torture, but adamantly denied complicity in any type of anti-Nazi activity. He was released unharmed after two days, but after receiving a confidential message that he was still in danger, he left home and disappeared for several, several weeks, moving from place to place. It was a strange and unchronicled interlude in his life, as he did not communicate with his family during his absence. The 58-year-old Adenauer had already been mayor of Cologne, beautiful city by the way, and president of the Prussian State Council, but his most impressive achievements were yet to come. The man who in 1934 was considered nationally unreliable by the Nazis became the chancellor of post-war Germany leading his country to economic recovery and respectability out of the rubble left by Hitler. This blew my mind. Absolutely blew my mind. So here we have General von, Schleich, uh, von Schleicher, who's assassinated in the doorway of his home at 10.30 a.m. on June 30th, followed by his wife, then the Gestapo, who had conducted the assassination, fearing that there might be some witness a couple hundred yards away, decide to hop a locked gate into this man's backyard while he's in the back watering his, his garden with his family. They arrest him. They hold him for two days. They question him. They torture him. They release him. He disappears. And then after, after the suicide of Adolf Hitler and the collapse of Nazi Germany, this individual is elected chancellor of Germany and has to clean up the mess of Hitler. 
who had ordered the assassination of his neighbor in 1934. 11 years. Yeah, isn't that wild? That's just... I had such a hard time wrapping my head around that. Rags to riches journey. <laughs> well, I, it wasn't quite rags to riches, but I mean, it was close. I mean, he, so he, he was the mayor of Cologne, or previously had been the mayor of Cologne. Cologne is this beautiful, okay. beautiful city in, in uh, western Germany, northwestern Germany, I guess, if you want to get specific. It's got uh, an incredible cathedral, which I've climbed two or three times. It's got over 700 steps. It's quite the hike. And when you get to the top of this cathedral, you can see the landscape for miles and miles and miles. And admittedly, as an individual who fears heights, it was the most terrifying and beautiful, probably the most terrifying and beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life, uh, simultaneously occurring. (laughs) (laughs) What was incredible about this cathedral, and and the name escapes me, forgive me for that, was as you climb these steps, and it's very narrow, these winding steps up these, up these turrets to the top of this cathedral with these different landings every, every so many steps, was they were made of, like, marble and stone. And they had been walked so many times for so many centuries by, by religious personnel and visitors that they had these deep, deep grooves in, in, in the stairs where, fo- where feet had worn away the stone. And I mean, absolutely beautiful, just beautiful. Cologne is an amazing city. Uh, and if anyone ever gets the opportunity, I absolutely recommend a, a visit to this, to this wonderful German city. Anyway, moving on, uh, a couple other notable victims, and there were quite a few, were Gregor Strasser. He was a founding member of the Nazi party and next in the line of secession to Hitler. He was taken by the Gestapo uh, to Gestapo headquarters in Berlin. He was shot in the back, mortally wounded, and left to die. So here we have the individual that would likely replace Hitler had something happened to him, uh, assassinated as a threat and political opponent. We also had Gustav von Kahr. He was a retired government official who had opposed Hitler during the Beer Hall Putsch, which is in 1923, which resulted in Hitler's imprisonment, although he only served nine months. Hitler was arrested during this time. He served his jail time, and this is where he did begin Mein Kampf. Gustav von Kahr was found hacked to death in a swamp near none other than Dachau. Another notable name on the list, and this, this goes back to Hitler's half-niece that you had mentioned and uh, previously, Walla, uh, Eli Rabol, Ra- Rabol. Again, I'm not a German speaker. Father Bernard uh, Stempfle. This was a priest who had assisted in editing Mein Kampf. What made him a target was his knowledge of Hitler's relationship with his half-niece. He was also found in the swamp near the hacked-up body of Carr. On Monday, July 2nd, around 4 a.m., Hitler called for the end of the purge. The exact number of murders is unknown. Documentation relating to the event was destroyed by the SS. Estimates vary widely, some saying 200 as far as casualties went, others higher than 1,000. Interesting fact, less than half of the victims were actually SA members. Less than half. Hitler, Goering, Hemmler, and Heydrich, Heydrich being Hemmler's second, 
I'd use the purge to cleanse the SA and remove any potential competition in the Nazi power grab. On July 3rd, the Reichstag retrospectively approved a bill legalizing the purge as emergency defense measures. Quote from the bill. The measures taken on June 30th, July 1st, and July 2nd, 1934, to thwart attempts at treason and high treason, are considered as essential measures for national defense. The German government had legitimized and approved Hitler's actions over the course of the past three days. On 13 July, Hitler announced to the public the events that took place between 30 June and 2 July, giving the purge its name, Night of the Long Knives, a line from a popular Nazi song, which I will not get into for obvious reasons. State media reported that the purge was a preventative measure and response to the SA's plan to overthrow the government. So here we are back at the SA supposedly planning to overthrow the government and replace the army's, uh, the, the German national government with a Napoleonic revolutionary army, which was inaccurate to begin with. So during the research process, I found it interesting that in 1934, Hitler determined that imprisonment and murder were the best options in dealing with populations that he deemed a threat. I mean, it's exactly what Night of the Long Knives was. It is difficult for me not to view the Night of the Long Knives as a micro-sample or a precursor of what was to come with the imprisonment and murder of millions of Jewish people and minority populations during World War II. Hitler was able to purge government officials in 1934 on a large scale. Prior to fully consolidating power, although he was chancellor, it did so without any legal retribution. Again, rewind to the beer hall, but he did face that legal retribution for nine months, which is a joke. In fact, it was the opposite, as the Reichstag legalized and approved the actions taken. With this in mind, it's really no wonder that Hitler was able to commit the atrocities that he orchestrated, yet was never held accountable for during the war or after the war, given that Cowardly as he was, took, he took his own life in a bunker. I think a big part of him never being held accountable was because the whole nation at this point is just, I wouldn't say enthralled, but deeply invested in the view of the fear as being a supreme leader and the necessity of like philosophers of such as Carl Schmidt about the fear being the law, about needing to take the law in his hands. And then, of course, by this time, it's just everyone's already in the mindset that might makes right. Right. And that life is a fight and that mm. you need a strong leader to guide and protect the people. And so with that type of ideology just going around, like, yeah, that's why he would be able to commit the atrocities he was able to do. But also, I feel like the whole Night of the Long Knives uh, event was kind of just this, oh, how do I put it? It was kind of uh, an indication of what to expect if you were to ever kind of compete with Hitler or overthrow him or conspire or anything. So I feel like even if the German people wanted to hold 
Hitler accountable. Like, I mean, if he can do all of that damage in just a night, like, I can't even imagine the the kind of fear that would be going through people's um, head when they're trying to uh, discern whether it's worth trying to make him accountable. Because, I mean, they would have to sacrifice everything to try and do that. And, I mean, it's... I can't imagine trying to make that kind of decision. No, you're absolutely right. And and you mentioned the people holding him accountable. The fact of the matter is that, that at this point, the opinion of the people was irrelevant. Mm, yeah. You go you go back the 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 Nazi regime and the the conservative government that had been installed under Hitler as chancellor. They bankrolled him. They bankrolled him. They absolutely enabled his rise to power. And it was all based on these behind-the-scenes negotiations, which is, of course, why we had the tension between Hitler, uh, his installed cabinet as chancellor, and the SA to begin with. Of course, when it came time after a purge like this, where the competition of the installed powers were no longer under threat of the SA, regardless of what the people thought, Hitler had delivered at this point. He had delivered. Why hold a man like that accountable? He promised that he would bring back the conservative Nazi party or the conservative power of Germany prior to the Treaty of Versailles to include the army if, if he was named chancellor and given the power to do so. And he did exactly that. He did exactly that. The say of the people, uh, and again, this, this was not a democracy. It was the illusion of, this was a dictatorship from the get-go. People regardless of what they may have thought, had no option but to support the Nazi party or else face the consequences. And it wasn't just them, it was their entire family. I mean, there's instances of, of anti-Nazi individuals in Germany ending up in concentration camps, Jewish or otherwise, yeah. along with their family, being executed, being pulled from their homes, being taken away from their very way of life. Uh, because they chose not to conform to the power base that existed in Nazi Germany uh, in the 1930s and beyond. I mean, you even go back to the individual who ended up being the chancellor in post-war Germany. He was questioned and tortured for two days. Are you or are you not anti-Nazi sympathizer, right? Or are you against us or are you for us? And somehow he got out with his life. So here we are in 1934, and already it's you will support or or else, right? Yeah, exactly. And that was just like that was just a matter of survival in his case. Like he yeah. said, like no, fuck you. I'm a complete anti-Nazi. You can all get fucked. But he had to kind of decide. It's like, do I sacrifice everything that I value and believe in? Or do I choose survival kind of thing? So it's, and right. that was the case for many German people, which I know would have been incredibly difficult to deal with. And some who, as you said, weren't willing to sacrifice so um, their values and beliefs. So they were sent to the camps accordingly. So it's... Um, mm. Yeah, the, 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 you know, in the future, the, I, I'd like to do an episode specifically focused on some of the war diaries of... 
German soldiers serving in the Wehrmacht, uh, Wehrmacht that, that, that were forced into service under, under the Nazi regime because their journals uh, speak out in protest in a lot of cases, against uh, the Nazi cause. And I, I, I think that's an episode that, that's worth looking into for us in the future is just at, at the very lowest level, the base level, um, what soldiers under Nazi uh, leadership had to endure and how they reconciled their actions with their moral and spiritual even compass, if you will. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to, to consider. All right. Well, in closing, this was episode two of Hardtack. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. And as always, if you would like to continue the discussion or add to it, you can find us on the Historical Studies Military History Discord, Twitter, or Instagram, all available through our link tree found in the episode description. You may also email us at hsmilitaryhistory at gmail.com with comments, questions, or even suggestions for future episodes. Join us Wednesday next week for Episode 3, The Great Emu War, where we will explore one of Australia's most troubling defeats, mercilessly doled out by a militarily competent avian species. We will also have a guest next week. We are very excited for his participation and collaboration on the topic. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep your hard tack dry.